if I could get your attention. As you know, <laughs> we've been going through some of the wild and crazy stories in the book of Genesis, and today is the story of Jacob. And you may be aware or may remember that Jacob was the grandson of Abraham, and Jacob was the father of the 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel. And so today is about that story of how Jacob had those 12 sons, and, uh, and Jacob was renamed, guess what? Israel. And so you wonder, maybe, uh, where did that name for a nation that, that uh, God's chosen people, where did that name came from? And it came from Jacob. So uh, we're going to try to go through about four chapters today. Should be no problem. <laughs> and what you'll see is Jacob constantly making bad decisions early in his life and God uh, using those decisions to bring about consequences that were going to shape and form his character so that you, he's going to take, as a young man, a very proud, egotistical, greedy young man and turn him into, later, 20 years later, a humble servant. And we'll especially see that next week uh, on your table. One of the great stories, make sure you do the questions and show up next week because it's wrestling with God. That's one of those stories that nobody understands, and uh, we'll go through it. And, of course, after next week, you will understand it. Absolutely. <laughs> and so, again, today, Jacob makes a lot of bad decisions, at the end of which, you know, uh, you want to ask him, you go back in a time machine and go, Jacob, why did you do that? And he's going to say, seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> right? And so that's very much like Kramer in today's lesson. Why would Kramer turn his apartment into a smoking lounge? <laughs> Have you ever made a really bad investment and you look back and said, what was I thinking? Why did I do that? That was wasted money. The answer is, it seemed like a good idea at the time, right? <laughs> you always look back and, and you, what was I thinking? Did anybody see 60 Minutes last night? A few of us. Uh, they had a story on there that just was hilarious. It's a combination of sad and hilarious. And what it is, about 20 NFL football players invested $53 million dollars with a promoter who was building a huge casino in Alabama. And, you know, he, he had this incredible presentation. He had, you know, all the billboard, you know, just showing them everything that they were in this huge, you know, like on 20 acres, this giant casino. And the best thing about it, uh, the pro forma showed that they were going to make this one guy that they interviewed, uh, he invested half a million dollars, and his performer showed that he was going to make a hundred million on the deal. <laughs> and so they saw this huge cash flow and the guy's, his pitch was not only did these casinos make tons of money, 
but we're going to have a monopoly. We're going to have the only casino in Alabama. And so they came in hook, line, and sinker, and all these NFL players put up the whole amount, and they built this casino. They're in, in a city in Alabama. They built this casino, huge deal, and they opened it on opening night. It was packed. They made, you know, just as good as they expected. The guy calls all of his investors and says, we did it. We're in the money. We're going to be rich. The next night, the governor of Alabama calls out all the state troopers and all the local police. It turns out casino gambling is illegal in the state of Alabama. <laughs> The guy never checked on that. <laughs> they built a $53 million casino, and it's illegal. <laughs> they were open one night. <laughs> and now, and they confiscated all of the equipment, all the slot machines and everything in there, and just left a big shell. <laughs> and so they lost the whole $53 million. <laughs> And the guy, and sure enough, the 60 Minutes guy said, does not, not seem like a, a foolish investment. Why would you do that? And this NFL player said, it sure seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> yeah, one problem, gambling is illegal. <laughs> and they asked the promoter, did you not think on checking on this before? He said, no, I didn't. They said, do you not think that's your fault? He says, not my fault. <laughs> uh, so why did it seem like such a good idea at the time? Greed. They saw that hundred million. We're rich beyond our wildest dreams. We must invest. And they even called their friends and said, you got to get in on this deal. You know how that, that thing goes. Uh, and so in today's story, we'll see Jacob make terrible decisions. And you're going to say, why would he do that? Because the consequences of all those decisions are severe. Why did he make such bad decisions? Well, it seemed like a good idea at the time, but why? Greed. Lust, power, all these things that control human emotions and quite often make decisions for us. And, and they have terrible consequences. We've all experienced that, I think. Some people won't admit it. <laughs> I think we all have at one time or another. And that's really what this story is about, how God takes this man who's got all those desires and all those lusts and, and changes them into a servant of God after 20 years of pounding on him and making bad decisions, Jacob is finally, you might say, healed <laughs> of all, all of his greed and uh, pride and everything else. Okay? So... To, to kind of set the stage in uh, uh, Genesis 28, Jacob 
and his mother, it's the greatest soap opera. The story of Jacob is, I don't know how you could have a better soap opera than this story. It's incredible. You've got dad loving Esau best and mom loving brother Jacob best, and they, they have these kind of a war of uh, wits, you might say, and Jacob and his mother outwit and get the blessing that comes from the patriarch, Isaac. Who's going to be ahead of the family, uh, own the family business, and run it, and be the one with the power? And so Jacob and his mother fool, trick, deceive Isaac into blessing and giving the birthright to Jacob. Well, naturally, Jacob was kind of a, you know, uh, stay inside, you know, mama's boy type guy. Uh, on the other hand, Esau was a rugged outdoorsman, you know, big tough guy. And so when Esau found out what had happened, that his birthright had been stolen, that, that his father Isaac wanted to give him, he naturally said something, you know, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and that's exactly what Esau said to Jacob. And so mom and dad, you know, we, gotta, we can't let this happen. And so they make up this great story. We're going to send Jacob off as if he's going up to see Uncle Laban up in Mesopotamia, which is about 500 miles away. <laughs> We're going to put that distance between he and Esau until everything calms down, and the story will be we're sending him up there to find a wife, you know. And so they sent him up there to see Uncle Laban. So Jacob leaves his home and his family, and he leaves everything behind, and he's alone. He's traveling by himself in the wilderness. He has nothing. He had to flee or, before he got killed by his brother. And so he goes out totally alone, a young man, no idea what lays ahead, no idea really where he's going or what's going to happen. And he's got to be scared. You can imagine the fear. You know, he had everything, and now he's got nothing, and he doesn't know about his future. And so in chapter 28, uh, by this time, God has already made it clear to the family that Jacob is going to be the child of the promise. Remember last week we said between Isaac and Ishmael, Isaac was the child of the promise, that God was going to bless spiritually the child who would be the ancestor of the Messiah, Isaac, and in this story, Jacob, not Esau. And so God had uh, sovereignly decreed that, made that promise. It was going to happen. And God's going to use their bad decisions to bring about his will in spite of their sin. And he's going to do it in such a way that he changes their character, changes Jacob's character. And so you can connect the dots and make the application in your own life and you can look back and see a lot of the circumstances that have happened to you in your life that have shaped and molded your character, that have changed your life. At the time, you may not have uh, been happy about your circumstances or some trouble that came your way, but God has used it to make you who you are, to build your character. And 
in Jacob's life, even more so to, to an extreme. So in chapter 28, we pick up the story, and here's Jacob out by himself, scared to death, doesn't know what his future is, doesn't know what he's going to do, has no money, nothing. And pick it up in verse 10, chapter 28, verse 10. Then Jacob departed from his home, Beersheba, down there in what's now southern part of Israel, and went toward Haran, which is up there by the Tigris and Euphrates River in the Mesopotamian area. And he came to a certain place and spent the night there. So he lays down in this place that he doesn't really even probably know where he, where he is. He just knows he's going north and east. And something amazing is going to happen that you've all heard of, but you probably didn't know the context of it or the story that was going on around it. And that story that you've probably all heard is called Jacob's Ladder. Have you heard that? Jacob's Ladder with the angels coming up and down. Well, this is it. This is where it happens here in Genesis 28. And what God's going to do, he's going to make it known to Jacob that even though this horrible thing has happened to him, even though that he's deceived and lied and cheated, being basically run out of the family, God's going to prove to him and show him that he still loves him, he's going to give him comfort, let him know that he still has a, a future, and that God's going to be with him. And so that's what this latter thing is about. And so we see, after he goes to sleep, he lays down that place, in verse 12, he has a dream. And it's a very real dream. God makes it that way. He had a dream, and behold, a ladder. The actual Hebrew word is stairway. There's a stairway going back and forth, and angels are descending and ascending. And so we see this, uh, by the providence of God, this connection between heaven and earth. And God is sending, what, what are angels, by the way? Uh, Hebrews 1.14 really defines it well. It says, they are ministering spirits sent by God to us. So God sends ministering spirits to work with us, to bring his word, to uh, represent him on earth. And so you get a visual of that here in chapter 28. So he had this dream, behold, by the way, where did the term, why does it translate ladder? Because the King James Version back in 1611, they translated it ladder, so it's kind of, uh, the translator stuck with that because everybody knows that story. But they, they know that, it, that it's actually a stairway, which makes a lot more sense to me <laughs> that they'd be coming up down a stairway instead of a ladder, you know. And so he, so he has this dream, verse 13, Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord. I am the Lord, the God of Israel, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the land which you lie on, I will give it to you. So he's still in Israel at this time. I will give it to you and to your descendants. This will be your land. Does this sound familiar? This is very much like what we looked at last week, the promise that God made to Abraham. God said, Abraham, come to the land of Canaan, which would become Israel, 
and look all around and see, I'm going to give you this land. But there's even more than that. I'm going to give you a bunch of descendants, a whole nation of descendants. So verse 14, your descendants shall also be like the dust of the earth. And you shall, obviously an image, a metaphor, and you shall spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And by that means the New Testament does a good job of interpreting that. He's saying all the families of the earth shall be blessed through one of your descendants, which is Jesus Christ. So he's making that promise of salvation, redemption, available for the human race through his son Christ. All right? So he's making these promises that he made to Abraham, now to Abraham's grandson. And behold, this is kind of the key to this. This is what's important to know. If you're Jacob or us, you need to know this. Look at what he says, verse 15. Behold, I am with you. I am with you. Now, the first thing you might think of, if you're with me, why am I out here alone in the wilderness? If you're with me, let me go home and take my rightful position. So obviously what God is, is saying, and based on the story we're getting ready to look at, when he says, I am with you, what he's saying is, throughout all your trials and tribulations and suffering and fears, I'm going to still be with you. I'm going to see you through that. I'm not going to change your situation. I'm not going to get you out of the trouble you've made for yourself. But I am going to work with you. And by my providence, it's going to end well. You don't deserve it, but I'm going to take care of you in the midst of your trouble. And I'm going to mold you and change your life and bring you back out of Haran, of Mesopotamia, a different person. And we'll see that uh, especially in next week's lesson. And so that's what he says to him, I am with you. And that's what he, he really needs to remember. No matter what happens, he needs to know that God is with him. We all need to know that, don't we? Stuff happens. <laughs> There's trouble out there, boys. This is a tough world. And it's a mysterious world, too. No way you can figure out what's going on half the time. But we need to know is, though, that God is with us. No matter what, God is still with us. And that's what he's telling him. And so he has a great response. Verse 17, how awesome is this place? What an incredible vision. I am, my faith is built up. I feel so good now. So God's vision really uh, took effect on him and made him feel like God was with him and going to help him. And so we see in verse 19, and Bethel is going to be an important place in the history of Israel and an important place when Jacob comes back because God's going to tell him, when you go back from Haran after 20 years, I want you to go to Bethel. What's the significance of that name, Bethel? Why does he name it Bethel? Because it means the house of God. The house of God. Great name, right? This is where he saw this vision of God and got a message and promises from God. 
the house of God. Great name. And so he makes a vow there to follow the Lord. And now he continues his journey, and in chapter 29, he arrives up there in that area uh, around the Mesopotamian area where the rivers are and, and gets uh, probably asked directions a million times and arrives in the area of Haran in chapter 29. So that's like the immediate sequel to being uh, comforted by God. He continues his journey, and whatever happens, he knows that God loves him and is going to be with him. And so when he gets to uh, Haran, he runs into a bunch of shepherds, and they're at a well here in chapter 29. And verse 5, he asks the question, do you guys know Laban? Because Laban's his uncle, his mother's brother, and that's who he's looking for because he's going to stay with him. It's going to be his refuge to, to keep away from uh, his brother Esau. And he said to them, you know Laban? They say, yeah, we know him. He says, is, is he doing good? Is, is it well with him? And they say, it is well. He's great. And behold, his daughter, Rachel, is coming with the sheep. So she was a shepherdess, and she was bringing the sheep to water. And when Jacob sees her, it's love at first sight. You can hear the music, right? Love is a many splendor thing. <laughs> You didn't know I could sing. and Still don't, yeah. <laughs> but you can hear that music in the background. And so here comes Rachel, and he sees her, and just immediately says, man, she's hot. That's not in your translation? That's in mine. I have the modern translation. And uh, so verse 10, it came about when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother. So it's his cousin. And the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went up, rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well. So he helped her water her flock. And Jacob kissed her, surely on the cheek, huh? <laughs> and lifted his voice and wept, got, got emotional at running into his relative and finding, finally, the place he was trying to get to. And Jacob told Rachel that he was a relative of her father, he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. So it came about when Laban heard the news of Jacob, his sister's sons, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him. So they had this great family reunion, you know. I've heard of you. You're, I'm so happy that you're here. And he tells him his story. I came up here. My mother sent me up here to see you and stay with you and blah, 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 you know. Uh, and so uh, Laban, then after he's there for a month, after he's there for a month, Laban says to Jacob, tell me, there's no reason for you to work for me for nothing. I'll be willing to pay you something to stay here and work. Because obviously he was a real good worker, very productive. So Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. He'd already met Rachel and already fallen in love with her. Verse 17 says something weird. 
Uh, and Leah's eyes, the, the older sister, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and faith. That but, B-U-T there, tells you that there was a, a very a big difference in the way they looked. I don't know what was wrong with uh, Leah, uh, but for some reason she wasn't as beautiful as Rachel, right? I read one comment, commentary where the guy said, we're pretty sure she was cross-eyed. <laughs> I don't know where he got that. There's no reason to believe that, but uh, clearly there was a contrast in their looks. One was homely and one was beautiful. Uh, and, of course, that was in uh, Jacob's point of view, beauty in the eye of the beholder. So Jacob loved Rachel, and so he says his response, what will your wages be? And, of course, the custom in that day was to pay a dowry for your, what, for your bride, for your uh, bride-to-be. And so Jacob's loved Rachel, and so he says, uh, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. So if you'll give me your younger daughter, Rachel, in marriage, I'll serve you seven years. And so uh, the deal they made was he served the seven years first, and then he would get married. And uh, he loved her so much and was so excited they make the deal, and he loved her so much and was so excited about that, the seven years went by in a flash. You know? You can imagine the, the sexual frenzy that was building up for seven years, right? I won't mention that because this is a G-rated course. <laughs> And so Laban said, uh, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to somebody else that I don't know. And so he makes the deal, I'll do it. And so Jacob, verse 30, served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days. And then Jacob uh, said to Laban, he had, at the seven years was over, he had to go. This is the kind, we get an idea of the kind of guy Laban is. He was just going to let it slide, you know. And so he had to go to him and say, hey, uh, seven years is up, uh, Dad, and so it's time for me to get married. And so they were going to have the, the wedding, and verse 22, Laban gathered all the men of the place and made a feast, you know, big wedding ceremony that night. And uh, it came about that in the evening that he took his daughter Leah and brought her to him, and Jacob went into her. Now, what? wait a minute. It's the old switcheroo. He made the deal for Rachel, but they probably uh, wore veils, and it was at night, and I'm pretty sure this party probably had some alcohol, and I think Jacob got overserved, <laughs> is what happened, because the next morning he woke up, and it was Leah, and so you can imagine his shock. Verse 25, it came about in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. <laughs> and he said to Laban, what is this that you've done to me? You tricked me. This is, this is a lie. You cheated me. Was it not for Rachel that I served with you? Why then have you deceived me? Now, that's hilarious. And by the way, the, the Hebrew word deceive right there is the same word that Esau used 
when he found out that Jacob had tricked him. When Esau came in and found out that Jacob had the birthright, he said, you have deceived me. The same word. And now it's happened to Jacob. You see what's going on here? See how God's going to use this? He took the deceiver, Jacob, and took him to a place where he would be under the authority of the ultimate deceiver, Laban. And so now Laban has really tricked him, and he's going to continue to trick him for 20 years that he stays there because Jacob really has no choice. He can't pick up and leave. And so they're going to make a new deal. Laban's going to say, I'll tell you what, the problem here is you didn't look at the fine print in the contract. If you'll go back and look at your fine print, you'll see that this is only, Rachel is only your wife if the older daughter is married first. But since she's not, you have to marry her first. But I'll tell you what, I'll give Rachel to you as well if you work for, work for me another seven years. And so he says, fine, but we do see in verse 30, so Jacob got Rachel. He said, fine, but I'm not going to wait another seven years for her. I get her now, and then I'll work seven years. So he made a little bit better deal than he had before. So in verse 30, Jacob went into Rachel also, meaning, you know, biblically, and indeed, he loved Rachel more than Leah. Uh-oh. <laughs> Let me see how this is going to work. In the same tent, he's going to have two wives, sisters, that are rivals. And those sisters are going to have children. And not only that, it goes on to say that their, uh, their concubine or their slave wife, I mean their slave uh, come with them, with each of them, will become slave wives to him as well. So Jacob's going to end up with four wives and children from, all, from every wife, and they're all going to live in the same tent. Let me see if I can figure out if there's going to be any rivalry, any trouble, any problems there. Absolutely, again, the greatest soap opera ever. You could never make this stuff up. And so we're told in verse 30, man, there's going to be a problem here because he loves, Rachel, loves one and not the other, but he's married to both of them. That's got trouble written all over it. Verse 31, notice that the Lord God is involved in all these circumstances. He's got his hand in there working everything. It says, now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved. And he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So even though he loves Rachel, he still uh, is managing to have sex with Leah. And Leah's going to have four sons, just boom, 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 boom. Four sons in a row before anything else happens. And one of the things that's amazing about God's providence, guess, guess what? Leah, the one that he didn't even expect to marry, and the one that he doesn't love, Leah becomes the mother, you could say, of Moses, 
David and Christ. One of her sons is Judah. Let that sink in. The hush falls over the crowd. <laughs> pretty, pretty wild. So God has this plan, you know, to raise up a Moses and a David and a course from the very beginning of the, the original sin, a plan to send his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. And this is a part of that puzzle. Amazing. And so Leah uh, just, bam, 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 has four sons, and she names them appropriately after something that's going on in her life at the time. So you look at verse 35, and she conceived again and bore a son and says, this time I will praise the Lord, therefore she named him Judah. So her fourth son meant praise the Lord, Judah, right? That, that Ah was actually a Yah, which is the name of God, you know, Yahweh, the, the name that he would uh, in the future give uh, Moses, Yahweh, I am that I am. And so Judah praised the Lord. And uh, then she stopped bearing, and when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, so here, here's Rachel, the one he loves, and, and they're, they're knowing each other in a biblical way, but they're not having any children. So she's got a problem. And we see in verse 1 of chapter 30, she became jealous. Because having children obviously is a big deal even in our culture. In their culture, it was everything. Especially if you have a rivalry with four wives <laughs> and everybody trying to control the family through bearing of sons. And so she became jealous of her sister and she said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. She's unhappy. Now, the amazing thing about this story as I was going through this is that nobody's happy. Everybody's unhappy. You would, I mean, think about it. Leah thought, since she was unloved, that if she could have a whole bunch of children, then she would be loved, and therefore she'd be happy. Rachel had the love, but she was unhappy because she didn't have children. And we see... In verse 2, Jacob is unhappy because he's taking heat from every side. So Jacob's anger burned against Rachel because she, she accused him and was mad at him and jealous. And so he's unhappy. And he says, look, am I in the place of God? I'm doing everything I can to see that you have children. But God is, is involved, obviously, and God has withheld from you the fruit of the womb. And so he knows that God is providentially involved in this whole thing. And so she says, okay, let's switch strategies here. Let's go to the broodmare strategy. So she brings in her maid, Bilhah, and says, I'm going to have children through my maid. I'll let him sleep with her, and then I'll take that child as mine. And so she said, here is my maid Bilhah, go into her that she may bear 
a child, and through her, I too may have children. So I guess you could also call this the birth wars. <laughs> Who can have the most? So she gave him her maid, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me and has indeed heard my voice and has given me a son. Therefore, she named him Dan, which means justice. And Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Judah, or Jacob, a second son. And Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have indeed prevailed. So she sees this as a battle a contest, a rivalry with her sister. And, of course, it is a sibling rivalry competition. Uh, and so she names him Naphtali, which means wrestling. And when Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took her maid Zilpah and gave her to Jacob. So now Leah, in order to continue to win the competition, sends her maid into the game as a substitute. So Zilpah comes in, and sure enough, she starts having children too. And Leah's mate Zilpah gave him two sons. And Leah says, happy am I, for women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. <laughs> now there's a, a kind of a weird, silly story here in verse 14 and 15, and it just shows you how crazy this whole soap opera is. They believe that mandrakes were a form of aphrodisiac and fertility. And so Leah had these uh, mandrakes, and Rachel saw those and thought, that must be how she's doing it. If I had those mandrakes, then I too could become pregnant and be fertile. And so she says, give me some of those. What do you want for those? And, she, and Leah says, verse 15, is it a small matter for you to take my husband? And would you take my son's mandrakes also? So Rachel said, therefore, I'll let you lie with Jacob. I'll give him back to you. She had pretty much control of him at that point, I guess. Tonight, in return for the mandrakes. Good plan, except it backfired. Leah gets pregnant immediately again. So Jacob came in from the field in the evening, and then Leah went out to meet him and said, you got to come in to me for Rachel's made a deal and given you to me. <laughs> Jacob's being tossed back and forth by all these women. <laughs> and God gave heed to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son of hers. And Leah said, God has given me my wages uh, because I gave my maid to my husband, so she named him Isaacar. And Leah conceived again and bore a sixth son to Jacob. And so Leah's going to have six sons. There's going to be 12 sons all together, and six of them are Leah's. And then you have two with each maid, and then eventually Rachel is going to have two as well. Uh, and so, so you see this all this happening, and again, how do you think this is going to end when, when, you, when it's all said and done? Are these people going to get along? No, it's going to be a disaster. Again, nobody's going to be happy. 
They're all going to be looking for love, you might say, in all the wrong places, as the country song goes. You know, Leah thinks if I just had enough children. Rachel thinks if I was just loved, and on and on and on. And Jacob just wants some rest. <laughs> He's worn out. <laughs> and so nobody's happy. And yet, they're all doing or attempting to do what they think will make them happy. Does that tell you anything about life? Everybody's out there. Everybody's out there doing what they think will make them happy. What will make me happy? And they're pursuing that, whatever it is. Like those football players on the 60 Minutes deal. If I could just had $100 million, right, I'd be happy. Not going to happen. That's not where happiness is. And so finally, in verse 22, God remembered Rachel. Okay, Rachel is barren. Everybody else has had children. So now, in God's time, according to God's providence, God opened her womb. See, in every one of these situations, every one of these children, God's involved. And God's got a plan for each one. So Rachel conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. Finally, I get children. And she named him Joseph, saying, May the Lord give me another son. Now sure enough, he will. It'll be many years later, uh, not here, but once they leave here, she's going to have another son, and she's actually going to die in childbirth, giving uh, birth to Benjamin. Right? And so uh, God is involved in everything. What all these people have in common is they're chasing some kind of dream, trying to be happy, and they're not. They're not happy. They're frustrated. They're angry. So here we are, Jacob, Rachel, Leah, Isaac, and Rebecca, their parents left back there, and Esau, all these characters all just wanted to be fulfilled. They wanted to be happy, but they were all looking in the wrong places. I remember I asked Charlie Adams one time what the definition of happiness is, and he said, living within your means, even if you have to borrow to do it. <laughs> Makes sense. Makes sense. <laughs> so where is... what? Where do you find happiness? Where is it? I looked up some of the great philosophers in history, and where is happiness? Voltaire was one of the great unbelievers, and it, he did everything he could to tear down religion, and in particular Christianity. So he ended up being one of the most unhappy people on earth, and he wrote right before he died, I wish I'd never been born. So it's not an unbelief. And it's not in pleasure. Lord Byron lived a life of pleasure, and he wrote at the end of his life, 
The worm, the canker, and the grief are mine alone. And of course, not money. Jay Gould, that, you know, I think he was a big time baker back in the robber baron days at the end of the 19th century. He had all the money in the world. And when he was dying, he said, I suppose I am the most miserable man on earth. Certainly not in military glory. A lot of people chase that. And Alexander the Great, no one's conquered more than that guy. He conquered the whole known world, went all the way over to India and conquered that. And he hit the ocean over there and said, oh, no. And he wept. He wept. And his generals came in and said, what's wrong? He said, there are no more worlds to conquer. My life is over. So where is happiness found? The Bible supplies the answer. Happiness, the answer is simple. In Christ alone. In Christ alone. Great passage. John 16.22, write it down. John 16.22. Jesus told his disciples, I will see you again. And when I do, your heart will rejoice. You shall be happy. And your joy, no man can take away from you. The kind of joy and happiness that Christ promises, they can't take away from you. That circumstance cannot change. It's yours and yours forever, eternally. And only Christ can give it. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with these great stories. They're so wild, but they're so much like life as we know it. And we pray, God, that you would help us, you guide us in our search for fulfillment and happiness only in Christ. And we pray in his name, amen. This? Your profession is this. Is